On today's episode, we examine one of the most reviled methods of modern warfare and piece together why a Nobel laureate defended his deadly contributions to the Great War. There's a rare isotope of hydrogen that gets us into heavy water. Loves a chemical reaction in the brain So let me be your Bunsen burner Let me be your naked flame Burn, baby, burn. Let me be your Bunsen Welcome to Light Your Buns and Burner, the science history podcast that lights up your mind. I'm Mariela Rosas, and joining me, as always, is a weapon of mass destruction. That's right. I was the guy George Bush was talking about, Jonah Baker. During your trip through Iraq, they just took satellite images of you, and then yeah, yeah you started a multi-decade war. That's what I did. That's what I do. <laughs> yeah, nothing better <laughs> to do than start wars. wars. Um, well, thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Last week, I did promise you that we were going to stick to our tragic story trend because that's kind of what we do here. Um, so here we are about to talk about the use of chemical weapons during World War One, And, you know, staying on trend, I guess. I also want to issue a disclaimer because suicide does come up again in this episode. So just be aware of that. That's right, folks. We could be talking about the Chemical Brothers or the fun chemical equations and drugs or something great <laughs> like that, but we're going to bring you more suicide and Nazis. Yup. <laughs> so this episode was inspired by the great podcast, Dan Carlin's Hard- Hardcore History. I listened to his six-part series on the First World War called Blueprint for Armageddon recently. So Jonah... I'm going to ask you this. What do you think it was like to be a regular soldier during the Great War or World War I? Uh, I think back on um, All Quiet on the Western Front. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's like, what, sleeping in a trench, burning bugs for amusement, thinking about my sweetheart back at home. And then all of a sudden, loud bangs and dirt everywhere. And I've <laughs> lost my leg and, and I'm trying to stab some dude. And, you know, Johnny... He ain't moving, and, moving. and all of a sudden there's this like this strange aroma of like I don't know yellow and white dusty powder, and I can't breathe, and I'm going down, and sounds like a fun time. Oh, definitely yeah. one of the funnest times in history. Uh, you know, there, there's uh, probably so many mixed emotions of killing people and fucking, I'm doing this to end all wars and yeah, all the other weird propaganda that they were got mm-hmm, going mm-hmm. on in their head and their the pride and all, that and all that stuff. It must have been uh, one emotional fucking wreck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Jonah, let me paint you a little picture about one specific day during World War One. Just so, that one day? Just well, We're going to talk about one day. One day, okay. Yeah. So it's late April of 1915. We'll just say that you're a French-Algerian colonial troop okay. stationed in the small Belgian town of Gravenstaffel. Oh, yeah. I know you, that place well. Yes, of course. Yes. Well, I mean, you're coming in from afar, oh, so oh. maybe you I, don't really know the town. I've heard of it. You've heard of it. Yeah. So you're embedded in a trench, along with fellow Algerians carted thousands of miles away from home to fight in a European war that has no meaning to you. Artillery bombardments fall around you in a seemingly endless high rate of crashes. Then around 5 p.m., the shelling stops. 
The brief respite only means that the onslaught of German ground troops will soon swell over the walls of your trench. Gripping your rifle and bayonet tightly, you brace yourself for the attack. But nothing comes. All there is, is a slight breeze. You close your eyes and breathe in deeply. This might be your last peaceful breath. And then you feel it. A tingling. No, no, a burning sensation. It's stretching down your throat, burrowing into your lungs. You open your eyes and look around you. The men nearby are gasping as a yellow-green fog engulfs the entirety of your trench. The burning is now in your eyes. You shut them so tight you think you might burst through them. As your chest tightens and you struggle to breathe, you fall to your knees. But the deadly haze is only denser near the ground. You crawl futilely until you bump into another soldier. He's on his knees, too. He's frothing at the mouth, his eyes jutting from their sockets, desperately clawing at his chest. As you both collapse, you open your eyes one last time, only to see the deadly fog of war. So, obviously, this is a fictionalized account. I don't know about that. I mean, I've had a few smokeouts very similar to that. Um, I've also woken up a few mornings very similar to that. Um, Just gasping for breath. Yeah, eyes burning and chest on fire. And like your buddy's like clawing at his chest. I've had some hotels where I've crawled through over my friends and stuff and, you know, try to get to the bathroom. Okay, so I maybe puke. this wasn't a scene from World War One. This is one of like from your, your days touring. Yeah, baby. <laughs> uh, every morning. <laughs> This was this morning? <laughs> no, that's terrible, though. Everything you had mentioned was just yeah, hell. Yes, exactly. And, you know, many similar or even worse stories came out of the Second Battle of Ypres. On April 22nd, 1915, the Germans launched an, an offensive against French divisions entrenched near the Belgian town of Ypres. The attack began with an artillery barrage followed by the deployment of over 150 tons of chlorine gas. The deadly cloud was carried over no man's land and into Allied trenches by a breeze. As the heavier-than-air gas fell into the trenches, many, many soldiers panicked and fled, giving the Germans the opportunity to gain ground. Sir John French, who was in charge of the British troops at Ypres, described the event like this, quote, The smoke and fumes hid everything from sight, and hundreds of men were thrown into a comatose or dying condition, and within an hour, the whole position had to be abandoned. So on this single day, on the single attack, Allied troops reported over 10,000 injuries and 5,000 fatalities from the poison gas. The surprising effectiveness of the gas attack shocked both sides and changed the trajectory of the war. World War I marked the end of gentlemanly warfare and turned into a chemist's war. So, although Ypres, which is a specific battle, is a prime example of how devastating chemical warfare can be, it was not the first instance of chemicals deployed during war. I mean, if you consider what the purpose of war is, and you think about it as inflicting as many casualties against your opponent as you can while suffering as little as you, as you can on your side, then the use of chemical weapons became an obvious option. You know, like, um, there's a little saying, all's mm -hmm. fair in love and war. Yeah. You know? I mean, hopefully you're not, you know... Giving shooting poison gas at your lovers, yeah, or kissing <laughs> your enemies. <laughs> that might work better <laughs> if you kissed your enemies. You might end some wars, right? Maybe, maybe I don't maybe know. Some wars could have just like been totally avoided by kissing. <laughs> just kissing a bunch of dudes, just in their... <laughs> running. <laughs> They're like, <laughs> so 
they have one side and then another side and you just all these dudes in battle they're just running at each other and embracing the first man they see and just making out. Just start making out, huh? I was thinking like, you know, you got like one king and another king and they just start making oh, out okay. or, or, I don't know, diplomat or some shit like that. You <laughs> they're know, like, just, all right, I guess. They just, you know, NATO just starts making out or whatever, you know. <laughs> So, like, what would happen if, like, say, these soldiers shoot a cloud of um, poisonous gas, and then the wind changes? And it well, that that happens right sometimes. It, it it like did come back at oh, them damn. at times, and some there was you know casualties on both sides. Ouch! Because of it, last ditch effort, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and that's when gas masks were developed. Yes, and it's such a crazy time in history, World War One, because it's like the early century, and there's. As I was researching this, there was this crazy picture of it was uh, uh, one one guy who was wearing a gas mask on a horse with this like spear thing. And it's like almost this like crazy steampunk looking picture. And I'm like, this was 100 years ago. Like, it's so crazy. Um, there was an evening I got off of work mm -hmm. and a neighbor across the street, me and him, uh, had a routine going on for a little while where we get off work and share a beer and a smoke and all that um well he one evening was just super excited about a yard sale okay and we went over there and we started rummaging through this guy's garage and we found all kinds of world war one marabilia that's cool and um yeah it was one of the things in there some of it was really cool <laughs> but um one of the things in there you look at it you would just cry it was a special gas mask suit for uh, infant oh crazy yeah just the fact that they had to make that mm -hmm. you know it's crazy uh but there was also really cool shit like cans of water mm -hmm. uh man like these weird like blocks of food and just all kinds of like badass stuff uh we found guns there and everything it was interesting oh. you know the ends of those guns with the knives they're not as the sharp bayonet. as you think yeah no fucking dull as hell that <laughs> shit would hurt well yeah i mean like a lot of these um soldiers were using like the same weapon for like as long as they were out on the field, or they'd be picking up enemies' weapons. And they're not, you know, yeah. when you're in the middle of a fight, you're not stopping to, like, sharpen your bayonet. So let's just talk about some examples of the use of poisons in war throughout history. Uh, around 600 BCE, the Athenian military put poisonous hellborn plants into the drinking water of Kara. Then during the Peloponnesian War in 429 BCE... The Spartans used noxious, noxious smoke and flames against Athenian allies. Sulfur fumes were used against the town of Plataea. Damn. Yeah. So the use of, of you know, poison during war has been around throughout history. I mean, since we've been waging war, basically. Um, the Chinese designed stink bombs of poisonous smoke and shrapnel along with a chemical mortar that fired cast iron uh, stink shells. So they're going more for like the, the noxiousness seems like they were like shooting stink bombs into like bathrooms back in the day or something but i used to do that oh yeah <laughs> so you were you know you're a war criminal well yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah i was at school i was considered um around 200 bce the carthinians used wine laced with mandrake root to sedate their enemies um so now they're kind of more that's a bit less chemical warfare and more of like drugging. trickery yeah drugging yeah, yeah. i want those enemies you want to be... Drugged? <laughs> yes, I do want to be drugged. I'm sure they probably got killed. Oh, 
So, Whoa. like, your drug, you're just not able to fight back because you're being murdered. Oh, yeah, that would suck. This isn't a fun drug. <laughs> I guess not. <laughs> I got ripped off here, damn it. Yeah, I'm like, damn it, Carthinians. During the Thirty Years' War in Europe, which lasted between 1618 and 1648, uh, we saw the use of toxic projectiles in the battlefield. Later in, those six, in the 1600s, France and Germany actually signed the Strasbourg Agreement that banned the use of poison bullets. So now they were putting poison on bullets, so when you're getting shot, you're going to you yeah, know, eventually die. die. Yeah. So this Strasbourg Agreement, this was actually the first international agreement to prohibit the use of chemical weapons in this sense. And this was back in the 1600s. So, you know, now that there's more people on Earth and they're fighting more often and people are getting creative, the, you know, the global superpowers are starting to try to limit or to establish laws of like what war should be. Then during the Crimean War, uh, the British chemist Lion Playfair proposed the use of artillery shell with crocodile cyanide against enemy ships. So even though his last name was Playfair, he didn't really want to play fair. So now let's say they, they make these rules for war, like, hey, man, don't mm-hmm. use uranium bullets or some shit like that, you know? <laughs> but like, and they're just like, okay, spit and handshake, you know, or something weird like that. Uh-huh. Like, what happens if like one of these dudes decides, man, you know, we're going to poison them. But we got them now, you know, mm-hmm. like, like they, they trust us, you know, what happens yeah, to them? Yeah, it's... Do, do, is all bets off at that point, and yeah. Well, that's what's that's kind of what happens in World War One. Once one side started using it, the other side was like, "Well, fuck it, we're gonna do it too." Uh, so this guy Playfair, he wants to use cyanide against enemy ships, and although the proposal was rejected because it was, you know, unfair, uh, Playfair responded in a very prescient manner. Quote. No doubt in time, chemistry chemistry will be used to lessen the suffering of combatants and even of criminals condemned to death. So he's basically saying, we're we're already like killing people by bombing them and shooting them. Like, what's the difference just using chemical weapons? Eventually, this is what we're going to be doing. But these chemical weapons end up affecting like whole towns and cities and people not involved and everything in between. Yeah. Uh, so chlorine gas was first suggested as an agent of, clem- of chemical warfare by a school teacher during the American Civil War. Uh, now, John Doughty envisioned a 10-inch artillery shell filled with two to three quarts of liquid chlorine that, when released, would produce many cubic feet of chlorine gas. So he's picturing these uh, the chlorine gas being put into shells and then shot at the enemy, in which uh, then it would, like, explode, and then the chlorine gas would, like, you know, spread throughout the battlefield. Spray some gas in it, it instantly ignite. Hmm? If you like spray some gas in that scene right there, mm-hmm. they would instantly ignite. Oh, so yeah? they would be poison and on fire. See, this guy yeah. should have been thinking. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Doty hoped that the use of the chemical would deliver quick and decisive victories. He said, quote, as to the moral question involved in the, in its introduction, I have, after watching the progress of events during the last eight months with reference to it, arrived at the somewhat paradoxical conclusion that its introduction would very much lessen the sanguinary character of the battlefield and at the same time render conflicts more decisive in the results. So what he's saying is like, same thing, we're shooting each other, we're like blowing each other apart. If we just use these chemical weapons, these men are going to be killed in a less violent manner, and they're still going to be dead. It's the same result. It's just going to be faster. So the American Civil War did see the uh, other proposals for the use of chemical weapons, such as dosing enemy combatants with chloroform so they pass out again like 
drugging them, and then and mixing uh, hydrochloric and sulfuric acids to create a toxic cloud to defeat the Confederates. Again, none of these were ever adopted. So before World War I, the American Civil War was like the other big conflict that happened where you see the introduction of modern warfare into what used to be like a um, gentleman's war kind of style of fighting. Um, and you see here that they're already starting to say, we have this technology, why don't we use it? Luckily, All bets are off. All bets are off, yeah. So now at the turn of the century, the British fired shells filled with uh, picric acid and explosive phenols, uh, which was an explosive phenol during the Boer War. These had little to, to no effect on their opponents. So now, even before the, the new century began, the global superpowers were seeking to instate agreements to prevent the use of chemical weapons. Again, you're seeing the rise of this technology and the global superpowers are coming together and saying, maybe we shouldn't do this. Just like with uh, the A-bomb, maybe we shouldn't make this. Yes. Yeah, exactly. It's They're like weapons of mass destruction mm -hmm. and like mass casualties. So the 1874 Brussels Convention on the Law and Customs of War sought to prohibit the use of poisoned or poisoned weapons, but it never entered into force. In 1899 and 1907, the Hague, 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 I'm going to say Hague, Peace Conference, Hague. Hagu. <laughs> the Hagu. <laughs> the Hague Peace Conference established pro uh, prohibitions against, quote, the use of projectiles, the sole object of which is to diffuse, is the diffusion of as asphyxiating or deleterious gases. Uh, so most major world powers were signatories at both conventions. But that really didn't deter what was about to come. Now, in the pre-war years... Both France and Germany were experimenting with tear gas as police weapons. They're 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 using it against their own people, kind of. <laughs> and as the war, it's patriotic. It's patriotic, yeah. Yes, yes. I mean, we still use tear gas during like riots or even non-riots. Oh yeah. Yeah. So now, as the war broke out, the French were the first to deploy tear gas against invading German forces. So technically, the French were the first to use something like this during the war, but it wasn't like a big success. Uh, oh, you tricky French. <laughs> well, they're being crazy. invaded. They're like, shit. Um, so the Allies further considered the use of chemical weapons on the battlefield. At the same time, the Germans were also looking at their options. They launched projectiles filled with a, a, a long irritant at the British in October of 1914 and shells filled with uh, xylyl bromide, which was a, a tear gas, at Russian forces in November. But neither attack had any effect or any noticeable effect. I think for like the Russian attack, it was like really cold. So like the, uh, the chemical itself like froze. And it nice. did nothing. <laughs> it it wasn't until the idea of creating a toxic gas cloud was posited in late 1914 that the events of Ypres, so that battle that we talked about in the beginning, was even possible. And the man behind this idea was a chemist named Fritz Haber. On the Fritz, huh? Fritz. Yep. Fritz Mr. Fritz. Cat. Pretty. <laughs> he was he was not that cool of a cat. Oh no? No. So let's let's talk about Fritz. Let's talk about Fritz. <laughs> <laughs> let's get Fritzy here. Um, so Fritz Haber was born on December 9th, 1868, in Breslau, Prussia, which is now a region in Poland. So we're we're back in you know Germany area. He definitely looks like he's from that area. From <laughs> he looks Prussian. Yes, like he very much does. He looks like <laughs> like 
the civilized version of that guy on 300, the bad guy on 300. Oh, Xerxes? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, he, he does look like a bad guy. He, yeah. You know, if you were going to have like a, you know, a Edwardian era bad guy, like super villain, it would be the, the guy, this guy. He's got a, like uh, a very rich get up for the time, mm-hmm. shit for today even. Yeah. And um, the goofiest fucking glasses ever. Uh, yeah, <laughs> like this guy, he's he's trying to play mind games with his glasses or something. Yeah, like, like Those are super villain glasses. They are super <laughs> villain glasses. This guy looks like no fucks he's given. he's bald. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's got that, that um, what's it called? Who's the bad guy of Superman? Uh, Lex, Lex, Lex Luthor, Luthor kind of yeah. look to him. Yeah, so so he was he's uh technically German. Um Really? Yeah. Well Prussia. Well, yeah, okay. I mean like Germany as we not as we know it today, but Germ like the German Empire, like the Reich under the, the Kaiser, didn't really come about until like eighteen seventies. Before that it was like Prussia and all these other little kingdoms. Okay. That makes um, sense, yeah. Yeah. So by World War One, like it was still a relatively new country. In a sense. So, anyways, back to Fritz. Uh, so he was the son of first cousins. So his his mother and father were cousins, and they married very much against their their family's blessing. <laughs> they knew they had to because they knew Fritz would come out of this. Yeah, you know, <laughs> like we have to make Fritz. You need to fuck up the gene pool <laughs> so Fritz can be created. <laughs> we need to fuck up the gene pool. <laughs> So their names were uh, Siegfried Haber and Paula Haber. And Siegfried. Sieg- Siegfried is such a German name, I guess. <laughs> so it's Siegfried. I- I'm digging these guys. Yeah. Man. Um, so his mother actually died three weeks after his birth from complications. Oh, no. Yeah. It was it was a really tough pregnancy for her. And then after the birth, you know, late 1800s, did the yeah, <laughs> you're yeah. more likely to die from childbirth. But his mother's death left his father, Siegfried, devastated. So Fritz was mostly raised by aunts and uncles until his father remarried when he was six years old. From an early age, he gravitated towards chemistry. His uncle Herman allowed him to conduct chemi- uh, chemical experiments in his home when Fritz was a teen. Uh, he would actually later credit his uncle with convincing his father that chemistry was a respectable field of study. Again, we have like that that cool uncle that that's really supportive because... If you remember, what's his face? Crick, his uncle, like, yes. showed him how to make bongs. Um, there you go. And his father had actu- was actually really wealthy. He was a merchant of dyes, pigments, and pharmaceuticals. Fritz himself was a first-generation German Jew. Uh, and if you recall, during this time, Jews, or basically throughout history, <laughs> the Jews were, you know, seen as another, uh, like, like, not very trustworthy uh, but during this time, it was like kind of like a new Germany where everyone was kind of included, in, including Jews. Uh, so it was it was kind of like the first time where Jews had more upper mobility than before. And also his father's wealth afforded him access to really good education. Uh, but, you know, since his mother died during, you know, because of his birth, his a relationship with his father was really strained. He was really closer to his stepmother, Hedwig, and his three half-sisters. So uh, he decided to study at the Friedrich Wilhelm University in Berlin because of the reputation of the director, August Wilhelm von Hoffmann. That's so German. I know. Such a <laughs> badass name, too. 
And uh, a physicist uh, named Hermann von Helm Helmholtz. All these German words yeah. are going to get me. You also me. need a von Helsing in there, too. Von you know? Was von Helsing German? I don't know. Sure. Still we'll sounds cool. <laughs> so, um, however, after just one semester, he grew really unsatisfied there. Uh, and then he transferred to uh, Heidelberg University in the summer of 1887, where he studied under our buddy Robert Bunsen. Well, no way. Yeah. So he ties into this. That's mm. awesome. Our hero. Our, our hero. Our spokesman. Our emblem. Our, <laughs> our episode number 10. Yeah, our episode number 10. Um, okay, so now in 1889, he's forced to complete one year of quote-unquote vol voluntary military service. So he it's required by law for all men at this time. Um, not Which really doesn't make it very voluntary. <laughs> Certain places of Germany and Austria, I think, still are like that. Oh, really? Yeah, like if I know, like say Austria, if I wanted to go... And become a citizen over there. Mm -hmm. I may have to do a year and, and until a certain age, obviously. Mm -hmm. And then after that, I think you just take your test or whatever. <laughs> um, but um, I know a certain young men, they have to do two years. Mm -hmm. And then and then they can choose from then to leave or not. Um, yeah. Yeah. So this, this uh, interrupted his studies. But uh, he returned in uh, 1890 to the Technical College of Charlottenburg in Berlin, where he became a graduate student of Karl Lieberman. So he studied or the organic chemistry of dyes, specific, specifically piperonol. Piper, uh, piperonol. Piperonol. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, them Germans and their crazy <laughs> words. I don't think that's a German word. No. It's just piperono. It's a it's a type of dye. <laughs> Is it? Okay. Um, oh, funny um, fun fact about that. Um, Fritz Haber is actually erroneously credited as uh, synthesizing MDMA. Really? Yeah, he didn't do it, but it's just he like while he was working on his PhD, um, there, he was working on very similar compounds, but he didn't actually do it. That. That didn't happen until like 1912. Okay. But, but you know, he was a pioneer. Yeah. He, he doesn't look like he'd really be into that, but, <laughs> you know, you never know. Like he came close, but not close enough. Okay. Um, he could have started the party earlier. Maybe if he had made MDMA, oh, yeah. then World, World War, War One would have been like. Pretty... It would have just been a big party. Yeah. It would have uh, been World War, no, World Party One. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> World um, Dance Party One. Like like the biggest Coachella ever or something yeah. like that, you <laughs> he know. Could have started Coachella. I mean, it gets muddy anyway, so it wouldn't yeah. have been that different than like trench warfare. <laughs> Make love, not war. Make love, not war. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he was studying the organic chemistry of dyes, and then since uh, the university he was at, Charlottenburg was not yet accredited to award do doctorates. Fritz actually received his PhD from the University of Berlin in 1891. So around this time, Fritz m first met Clara Immerwar at a dancing lesson. So she was, Ooh. yeah. Is so she the love interest? She is the love interest. All right. And kind of like the uh, other tragedy of the story, oh, as we'll no. get to. Um, Fritzy, happening cat. Living up to his name. Yep. So she was also a student of chemistry and a wealthy farm girl. Oh, um, get it. Get yeah. It, Smart and wealthy. <laughs> Hey, and apparently she was really good looking, Damn, you know, according. Triple threat, huh? Yeah. Wow. Brains, money, and looks. 
God, I wish I had at least one. So he he instantly fell in love with you know, the brilliant, beautiful, and, and ambitious Clara. But when he proposed marriage, she refused. She's like, uh-uh, buddy. She wanted to remain financially independent so she could complete her education. So she had her eyes on the prize. But this is Fritz we're talking about. I mean, like he just looker. looks like he would be the king of the world. You know, <laughs> like he, he he looks like he's running shit from behind the scenes. Like he's the head of the Illuminati. You know, with like, those glasses. Uh huh. Yeah, exactly. He's, he's like, actually described as being like a really gregarious and funny guy, and like really, really loyal to his friends. And like she li- she did like him. She just she oh, had she just other didn't goals. Want to get married. Yeah, she had other goals. Oh yeah, she bring it back a notch, Fritz. Yeah, he's, he's into like, this, you know. You know, I I don't think he was very disheartened by it, though. Oh, he doesn't seem like he has a heart. <laughs> oh, we'll get to that. Um, so Clara actually would become the first woman in Germany to pass the national entrance exam for pre-doctoral chemistry, as well as the first to be awarded a doctorate in chemistry from any German university. So she herself was a pioneer. Yeah, get it, Clara. She's like on that shit. So after his PhD, Fritz spent the next three years working in industry, including including briefly working for his dad, which didn't work out at all because they butted heads a lot. I mean, I... Sons and dads usually do. No. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. Well, I mean, if your dad's kind of blaming you for the death of your mother. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Which you had little to do with just because you were a baby. Like, it's not your fault. But, Yeah. So, yeah, so he worked for his dad a little bit because, you know, he has like his background is kind of in that he's like a dye chemist and his dad is a merchant of dyes and pigments and all that other stuff. Um, but regardless, in 1894, he was assigned as an assistant in the Department of Chemis- Chemical and Fuel Technology at the Technological University in Karlsruhe. 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 Sure. <laughs> Karlsruhe. German word. <laughs> Karlsruhe. I don't know. Ladies and gentlemen, if there's anybody fluent in German, please <laughs> hit us up and stuff. like, and be like, stop bastardizing our language, and <laughs> and sorry. you can um, email us the correct pronunciations. I wanted to look up pronunciations, but then I didn't because um. <laughs> I didn't even read the script. This is all a surprise to me. <laughs> um, yeah, so he was he was working at this technical university, and he quickly rose through the academic ranks. He himself was really ambitious. He he wanted to achieve a lot. Okay. Um, he also had a bit of an ego on him. Yes. And so while at this university, he worked on the decomposition of hydrocarbons, studied new technologies in dye production, and advanced developments in electrochemistry and thermodynamics. Damn. So okay. he was fucking on top okay. of it so he can wear those glasses then yeah he, can pull them he earned those glasses that ego and that and those smarts <laughs> that yeah okay yeah so by 1898 he was made assistant professor of chemistry so he's kind of he started as an assistant to like another professor and he got assigned all these little tasks and then he's rising to the top okay um, he looks like he's on the top already he'll get there and then he'll fall right off yay <laughs> i hope it's a long fall it's going to be. Okay, so in April of 1901, he met up with Clara again. So they're, like, drawn to each other. Um, they were both now accomplished chemists. So she had been the first woman to achieve all this stuff, and he was, you know, rising Fritz. through. He was Fritz. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. They rekindled their romance and married in August of that same year. Uh-oh. 
Yeah. Although they both had been born Jewish, they married as Christians. They both had converted in the previous years because it was probably going to be easier to enter academic circles. Because, again, although you're kind of seeing, like, a bit more tolerance in Germany for Jews, there was there was always that stigma. Hey. Because, you know. Yep. Oh, them crazy Jews. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, them crazy Germans. Okay, better. Okay. <laughs> Um, so Clara had hoped to maintain her academic career while married, but soon the strain of a house of household duties proved too much. And Fritz had uh, obtained significant renown through his research and books that he frequently frequently hosted dinner parties at his home. So she's kind of having to take care of all like the household stuff, like be a wife, even though she's still trying to be, you know, in academia. Yeah. yeah, and at this time, like, she couldn't hold, like, a, a professorship or anything like that because she was a woman. And, you know, it's the, the late, you know, 1800s, so, of course, like, women can't do science. Yeah. <laughs> Which, what are you trying to do, little lady? She needs a uh, kitty in her life. Mm-hmm. You know, kitty would have showed you how to chemistry it all up while throwing one hell of a ball. Oh, hell Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so she, she only did, she was only like invited to speak like at, you know, seminars on chemistry in the household and all like these lady science kind of things or like okay. science for ladies. Oh, wow. Yes. Yeah, so. I wonder what that would have been like at that time. You know, <laughs> like this is how you cook. Uh, yeah. The cheese and the meat go between the bread. <gasps> Gasp. What? I mean, baking a cake is like, is chemistry you can eat. Technically, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of um, chemistry going on in cooking. Mm -hmm. There's like so much. It's really interesting uh, when you break it down and tasty. Um, yeah. But it's, it's not the same as being like, you know, an official scientist, chemist. Yeah. It's interesting too because um, cooks live gruesome lives. Some of them do. <laughs> some of them. What? what do you mean? I, what I really meant to say was uh, some work uh, gruesome jobs. Okay. You know? I was like... And, what? Like, are they like serial killers? Are they getting their arms amputated? Are they like burning themselves in ovens? What's happening here? Not a secret <laughs> life of a woman cook in 19 or what, what year were we in again? Late 1800s. All oh, right. We're still in 1800s. Oh, wait, no, no. We're in 1901. 1901. Yeah. 1901. That's what I thought. Yeah. So, yeah, she's her hopes of, you know, being you know, in the scientific field are kind of being dashed. And additionally, uh, a very difficult pregnancy and the birth of a sickly son named Herman forced Clara to kind of give up her personal goals. Oh, no. Yeah. However, Fritz, at this time, did love and respect his wife. So she was frequent, she was a frequently, she was frequent, frequently a collaborator in his research. Okay. So she was, she was still like helping him, but kind of like help him, helping him propel his career oh, instead his of career. her. Yeah, it's like they didn't really team up. You know, it wasn't. It, it was, wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't like you know Marie Curie and Pierre. Okay. It was. You're my lab assistant. Uh, he did make me a sandwich. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that's her contribution. Okay. No, no. Um, he did uh, dedicate his 1905 textbook on thermodynamics to his quote beloved wife, Mrs. Clara Haber, PhD, with thanks for quiet collaboration. Oh, so like she she Heart. helped me out quietly, but she does. She's a scientist too. So by 1906, Fritz had gained full professorship at Karlsruhe. Uh, it was during this time that he actually began working on one of the most beneficial inventions in human history. Oh? 
So this is where things kind of get a little complicated in this guy's story. Because while we want to like really like paint him as a villain for what he did with the chemical warfare, he also did something else that's saved a lot more lives. Interesting. Okay. So let's talk about that. Now, growing populations in Germany and globally were surpassing the available food supply of the time, or rather the ability to produce sufficient food. Food production required not just land and labor, but also fertilizers to make things grow more and more efficiently. During this time, the main source of nitrogen fertilizers, because nitrogen is needed for the the, um, synthesis of the plant cell wall. Um, So it's nutrients. Yeah. So the main source of of nitrogen fertilizers were bird and bad guano. So Poop. Okay. Poop. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of uh, jokes, and it's supposed to be bad guano. supposed to be the best, you know, oh, due to that, the um, that old uh, uh, Jim Carrey movie, remember? <laughs> <laughs> um, I know growing up in the 90s, out here in uh, the farmlands of Merced, you know, chicken shit weed was very <laughs> popular. <laughs> um, but, I mean, as you can, you can imagine... Uh, there's only a limited supply of bird and bat poop, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, countries actually went to war over control of guano deposits. Really? That's interesting. Yeah, it was such a huge um, burgeoning industry, I guess. Like, like I believe like Chile and Argentina or one of those countries went to war with each other. And they were like one of the largest distributors of guano for fertilizer uh yeah uh, you know so countries won war and then the deposits were sold at a very high premium so it's also really expensive just because it's so limited it's kind of like oil today right yeah um so if the human population was to be fed a new technology needed to be developed one of the largest sources of nitrogen on earth is in the atmosphere 80 percent of the atmosphere to kind of be roughly exact But pulling the fertilizer down from the sky was a very daunting task. You can't just get it, right? For plants to use nitrogen, it it must be fixed into a water-soluble compound such as ammonia. Because, I mean, the plants themselves can't pull it out from the air. It needs to be taken up through the roots. There are some plants who do nitrogen fixation because of bacteria, but not usually like what we consider crop plants. But like the reason is, is that nitrogen exists as a trivalent molecule, meaning that it, it is very difficult to extract without a powerful energy source. So it's like the the bonds between the, the nitrogen, they're very hard to break apart. Um, so other scientists had tried to, to break the, the bonds by oxidizing the nitrogen through combustion methods, but this didn't really work out. Of course it wouldn't. No. I mean, come on now. You're going to get But by 1908, our little buddy Fritz had shown that subjecting nitrogen to high pressure and heat while pumping hydrogen into the mix with an iron catalyst would result in the production of ammonia. So he figured this out, that you kind of do the opposite of like burning it. You just kind of press it. Does that make sense? Yeah, because um, instead of uh, trying to pull it apart, he's trying to squeeze it so it pops out. Yeah, well, what's happening is, um, I guess you can think of it like the hydrogen atoms are like wiggling in between the bonds, and then the nitrogen is bonding to uh, the the hydrogen instead of other nitrogen. Okay. So they're like, oh, I like you instead. Hey. Um, because ammonia is basically nitrogen with three hydrogens attached to it. Okay. 
Um, Damn, Fritz, you smart cookie. Yeah. And then um, uh, a young chemical engineer named Carl Bosch then helped scale up the production of ammonia to like a, an industrial commercial size. In 1911, the first commercial ammonia plant was opened in Germany. So together, they kind of developed this method where they can do it at a very large scale. Today, like as of right now, about one half of the world's food is fertilized because of the Haber-Bosch method. Really? So this is how the world is fed. How, do, how does this affect our plants and trees and stuff? We're just they, able to... Oh, what, do what they do you ever mean? take a hit from it? No. No? Really? No, it's just it's just fertilizer. Like you're just Damn, taking it. Damn, Fritz did it. Yeah. It is perhaps the greatest scientific discovery in history. It stopped wars, fed children, and led to the modern age. Dang, this guy's like a, a saint or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so because of this guy, billions of people are fed. Yeah. So it kind of it, it we'll we'll discuss it at the end as to like what we end up thinking of him because he did this incredibly amazing thing for the world. But at the same time, he's also going to do some shitty stuff. Oh, yeah. Okay. So Fritz had su- succeeded in feeding not just his motherland but the entire world. He had pulled bread from the air, is what they kind of said about it. He was lauded as a national hero and moved among the upper echelons of German society, including meeting Kaiser uh, Wilhelm. But his workaholic lifestyle kind of placed a large strain on his personal life. Because as he's working to achieve this, he's kind of not, you know, he's traveling away from home. He's leaving his wife and kid by themselves, not really paying much attention to them. Um, Cause he is described as an incorrigible workaholic. Okay. So like he's devoting most of his time to his work. Um, so, but it all seemed to pay off when he was appointed as director of the newly established Kaiser Wilhelm Institute in Berlin. So in 1911, he moved his family there. A new life for the family. Mm-hmm. They can all be closer yeah, like a new now. start. He's going to be more in the administrative side instead of like spending hundreds of hours working in the laboratory kind of stuff. So it seems like stuff is going to be a little bit better. Now we're going to stop right here for a sponsor break, and then we'll come back and talk about the First World War. Woohoo! All right, so we're back. Let's kind of talk about what he was, what he got involved in when the First World War broke out. So as we kind of know from our history class, the First World War broke out in July 1914 following the assassination of Austro-Hungarian heir Archduke Franz Ferdinand, which is also a band. Is it really? <laughs> yeah, Franz Ferdinand. Okay, I'll um, check it out. They're kind of like a poppy rock kind of thing. Okay. So Germany obviously sided with the Austria hung- with Austria-Hungary against Serbia because the the assassin was a, a Serbian. The Germans hoped to carry out uh, the strategic Schlieffen 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 plan to ensure a successful and expedient two-front war. So they kind of had been planning this for a while. Like the Germans were, you know, if war breaks out, because at this time there's also a lot of like um, tension. 
Ten- yeah, tension. The assassination of the Archduke was kind of the catalyst of the oh, war, okay. but so there was, it was like a, a, um, a lot of strings attached to each other. Um, and once like the right thing was pulled, it all just came apart because, you know, effect. yeah, people were out, al- you know, countries were allied with each other. And if, you know, someone declared war with another, then, you know, Brit- Britain had to come in in defense of their ally and stuff like that. Uh, so the Germans knew that there was going to be a war eventually. So they had this like plan that they were going to execute to win it really quickly. This was the Schlieffen plan. So basically, the Germans were going to throw most of their military might at France by invading through the neutral country of Belgium and then quickly smashing down on France like a hammer. So because Belgium is kind of like on the top side of Europe, like above France, and they're a really tiny country and then have like a huge military. They kind of depended on their allies, which were France and Britain, to defend them, like Mm. in case war broke out. So the Germans thought, well... This neutral country, because they're also neutral at this time, they hadn't declared war on anybody, and they probably wouldn't have. They thought, we're going to, you know, we're just going to march our army through there. They're going to, like, step aside, let us come through, and we're going to be able to, like, hit France really quickly before anybody else can mobilize. Because at this time, it's not like I'm declaring war on France. It's not like France is going to have their troops ready right away. But Germany, since their plan was... Since they had this plan for a long time, they were kind of ready for war. So they had their troops early, mobilized really early and ready to fight, while the rest of the superpowers were kind of like, oh shit, we got to better get our people ready, our equipment, and all that stuff. So Germans is ready to go. Let's do Germans this. were ready to fight. Yeah, they're like, we're going to wrench the plan. So yeah, so they they were trying to smash uh, France as quickly as possible. That way, when the Russians came in, they wouldn't have this like, massive two fronts right okay um but the, smash the france like that they're badass well as it turns out uh but the plan didn't work out as expected the germans really underestimated the resilience of the belgians and their plan was stalled along the western front trenches appeared creating a stalemate between the central and allied powers and once the russians and british armies armies mobilized uh, and enter the fray, the German military strategi- strategi- strategists had to get creative. Because it's basically almost like it's Germany against everybody else. Yeah, I can see that. Because, yeah. I mean, although they're allied with Austria-Hungary, Austria-Hungary does not have their shit together, Mm-mm. as like um, German um, military leaders would put it. They're tethered to a corpse because they're they're stuck with Austria-Hungary and they're not doing shit. They're not pulling their weight. Germans are constantly having to go in and bail them out. So they're kind of in this really like shitty place <laughs> where everyone's coming in on all sides on them. So they have to kind of come up with this plan where they're okay, what can we do to turn the the tides in our favor? So once the British entered, uh, they blockaded Germany. They have lim- Germany has limited access to um, the sea, okay. um, so the British at this time still had a massive navy. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they used that might to blockade Germany and limiting their access to nitrates for munitions and explosives. Oh. But one thing that Germany has is Fritz. If you remember, he was producing ammonia in these big plants. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So uh, the nitrogen fixation plants facilitated facilitated by Fritz's invention provided the needed nitrogen for German ammunition. 
it's estimated that without these, it's likely that the Germans would have had to surrender as early as 1915. So if you know, the First World War lasted about four years. So without these, without Fritz's invention, they, they the would war would have been over within like a year or so. Yeah, if um, even that. If even that. Yeah. So... This is not only this is not the only way that Fritz helped the war effort on behalf of his country. So Fritz was a really proud German patriot. He kind of considered himself more German than Jewish and eagerly sought to aid Germany during the war. He believed that, quote, during peacetime, a scientist belongs to the world, but during wartime, he belongs to his country. So Ooh. he's yeah, so he's ready to serve his motherland, fatherland, whatever, um, in any way that he can. And he wasn't the only scientist doing this, especially in, in Germany. Big scientists like Otto Hahn were involved in the war effort to nice. do some of these things. So then he was, um, Fritz is a who's who yeah, he, in the crowd. Yeah, because yeah. He, he, he created this method that, you know, mm-hmm. saved millions of people. So he volunteered with the War Department and suggested the development of asphyxiating compounds to release against enemy troops. At first, the the German high command didn't want to use this because this was, you know, considered ungentlemanly, unfair. It was like poisoning the wells, you know. But in desperation, as I said, they're kind of seeing, you know, red flags that they're going to be, you know, they're not going to be able to keep up. They eventually um, agreed with his request, even though it violated that Hague Convention. So if you remember earlier in... um, the last time it was uh, signed, it was 1907, yeah. saying that they couldn't, they shouldn't. Countries were signing that they it wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't use asphyxiating agents in war. Uh, so now his wartime contribution contribution shifted from producing ammonia to manufacturing poisons. Ah, uh, he went to the dark side. He went to the dark side. I think this is when he put on those glasses. I think before that he was just kind of like. <laughs> He had normal That's glasses. Right. He had hair and he was like no glasses and he um he didn't dress that way either. He he dressed like just chill. Like a you chill know? professor kind. Yeah, and he was just he had like a lab coat on and uh-huh. and you know, every now and then he'd probably smoke a funny cigarette. <laughs> and he was just like really cool and like, babe, I love you, but I gotta like run and, and Save use the world. my science to, for the world, you know. Uh-huh. And then they put on that tie and that weird bow neck thing that he has and he grew out that little fucked up fake mustache, <laughs> and then they, and he put on he shaved his head and put on those those fucked up glasses. They're all shaped and warped, all weird, and he became Fritz, Fritz, the evil poison maker. <laughs> like before, he was Professor Haber. Now he's Fritz. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> Doctor Fritz. So his wife Clara was aghast at her heart at her husband's new vein of research. She is described as a pacifist and pleaded with her husband to stop his development of, gla- of gas warfare. Smart. She was smart. Yeah, she's like him. saying, don't do this. Like, don't don't kill people this way. Um, she, like, he completely ignored her, basically. So she came out publicly and adamantly against Fritz's work. Uh, she condemned the perversion of science as, quote, a sign of barbarity corrupting the very discipline which ought to bring new insights into life. She's saying that, like, science shouldn't be used this way. You shouldn't be using it to kill people. Like, you can use your science to for a different, like, to mm-hmm. fix this a different way, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But in turn, Fritz denounced her as making treasonous statements against the fatherland. 
So he's saying you're a traitor for even oh, thinking this shit. way. So my the country rift before my girl. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> so the rift between the couple was really deep. Uh, by this point, Fritz had made his disdain for Clara's scientific pursuits clear. Like he's no longer like that good, loving, supportive husband. Now he's like he's, he's like, got his you. massive ego, and yeah. like he's like. We should, Shut up, make me a sandwich, lady. He's evil now. He's, yeah, he's, he's evil. Not he's pure evil. Like, he surpassed Vader and, yeah. and all that. Like, he's <laughs> just like, he, he thinks he's the angel of death. Mm-hmm. Oh. Oh. The, the, the professor of death. Professor of death. <laughs> professor Chemist of death. Of death. Um, so, he had also had several affairs while away on work. So, now he's also cheating on his wife. Uh, he's telling her that she shouldn't be doing science anymore. It seemed that his work on chemical warfare would be the final straw in the relationship. But the mounting tensions at home did not dissuade Fritz from pushing forth with the implementation of chlorine gas as a weapon. Yeah, so he's still, like, full-on, like, we're going to use these. So, that brings us to that fateful day at Ypres uh, in April 1915. Fritz stood on the German side, clad in a fur coat and his prince nest glasses, puffing a cigar. So... He was over, yeah. Fucking pimping. I mean, evil, but pimping, you know? Yeah, he was evil pimping. <laughs> so, uh, you know, before he's there to supervise the first release of he's Chlorine Glass. Like, like a badass, like legit supervillain. Yeah, he's like, he's like in a fur reals. coat, puffing fur coat, a cigar. With those glasses. With those just, glasses. Just I picture the wind, you know? and just, He's just feeling the, the wind. The bottom of, of his coat, you know, moves <laughs> up a little bit and there's like bullets flying by him but you know they don't face they him. don't face him because no, he's he, fritz he's <laughs> yes i th- thought like that fur coat thing was just oh my god i'm sure it was cold but still so around 5 p.m he felt a favorable wind blow in and he gave the signal i believe he said something to god punish the british or something like that and then six thousand tanks were opened, releasing a massive toxic cloud into the battlefield. So the man who had fed millions was now responsible for the horrid deaths deaths of thousands, and he was very pleased about it. He was ecstatic. Damn. Yeah. He's a madman. Yeah. So, again, he was hailed as a German hero, uh, this time for much darker reasons. So Fritz was promoted to captain, uh, and then he went home to spend time with his family in Berlin. On the evening of May 1st, a dinner party was thrown in his honor. So he, you know, friends and family were all there to honor him as this, like, German hero. But Clara was not in any mood to celebrate. She confronted Fritz and an an intense argument broke out. She called him morally corrupt. And he then also reiterated that she was an enemy of the German state. So something kind of broke in. I don't want to say broke, but something triggered Clara. So later that evening, on the morning of May 2nd, Clara took Fritz's service revolver and walked out into their courtyard. She pointed the weapon at her chest and fired a shot into her heart. Oh, you should have fucking shot Fritz and then shot yourself. Shit. <laughs> she should have done that. Yeah, come on, Clara. You're smart. <laughs> oh my god, at this it. would have been such a much you, different. It, it, I mean, the show would be over at this point, but like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um,. Yeah, that's what she should have did. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, that would have been dope. So uh, her 12-year-old son, Herman, was the only one to hear the shot. Unfortunately, well, don't give a fuck. No, he's like sleeping the sleep of the 
of evil, I guess. (laughs) He's meditating evil thoughts. (laughs) So he, he walked out and she hadn't died yet. So he watched her die. Okay. Yeah. So it didn't, like, shooting her heart didn't kill her right away. Well, no. It's almost poetic, you know? Yeah. You know, I mean, you, you took like, my heart, and now I'm going to take it back and shoot it or something like that. Shoot like, it. If you... That's what you did to my heart or something like that. Yeah, okay. I mean, at least she didn't poison it or something, you know? Poison their relationship, their love. So, Fritz, you would think he might have been a little disheartened by all this. Oh, he's a single man now. <laughs> and he's fucking famous and captain and evil and... Yeah. He's he's got a new look at things. Yeah, yeah, he didn't he didn't even stay to grieve for his wife. That that very morning he departed uh, to oversee the deployment of poison gas against Russian troops. So he he was like, well, I got shit to do, and his son was the one who had to kind of deal with the whole aftermath of his wife taking Bam. her life. So, but, I mean, Clara's death did haunt Fritz for the rest of the war. He would later write, "quote I." I hear in my heart the words that the poor woman once said. I see her head emerging from between orders and telegrams, and I suffer. So at least he was affected by her death. He wasn't completely heartless, even though he seemed like it. Well, that was probably, you know, at the times he was hungry for a sandwich or something, you know. <laughs> like, oh. He's like, oh, I miss her. She was good. <laughs> <laughs> so now... After the first deployment of chemical weapons, both sides of the war quickly developed more chemical weapons, such as, you know, chlorine gas, phosphine, and mustard gases, as well as deterrents like um, gas masks. By the end of the war, chemical weapons had claimed over 100,000 lives and inflicted 1 million injuries. But in the end, Germany lost, and all of Fritz's efforts were for naught. So even though he, oh, he unleashed, unleashed this on the, you know, war... Germany still lost. Fritz, Fritz, Fritz. I don't know what to say. You left me speechless, buddy. (laughs) He did so much good and then turned right around and was Mm -hmm. like, yeah. And for nothing. And for nothing. You didn't even get a victory out of it. It just... You lost your girl, buddy. He's slipping. Yeah. All it really did was prolong the war and make it more gruesome. Yeah. But that didn't stop him from winning the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 1918, and this was for his work with ammonia. So this guy, for, got, oh, okay, for for defeating the people, for feeding, oh, not okay. for chemical warfare. Okay. That would have been like, so this bad. Motherfucker got a fucking Nobel Prize for that, <laughs> with the World Peace one or something. Like no, it was really controversial. Um, at the same time that he was being awarded the the Nobel Prize, like the Allied powers were calling him a war criminal. Like, um, he kind of was. was. Yeah. He broke, but he at the broke same time, a, like, a contract. So, yeah, yeah, he was the first one to do it. Yeah. But then everyone else also did it. So. Well, I mean, at that point, all yeah. bets are off. I mean. Exactly. So when he accepted his award, prominent some prominent scientists refused to shake his hand. Like, people were, like, that pissed off at him in the scientific field. And for the most part, he was now a scientific pariah outside of Germany. Really? Well, outside of Germany, okay. I mm-hmm. see. In Germany, he's still like he's considered like, like okay. yeah, he he was a patriot for a while. Through the harsh reparations imposed on the the new Weimar Republic, Fritz remained a patriotic German. He actually sought to alleviate his country's financial woes by developing a method of extracting gold from seawater. Because after the war, like German, like 
all the fault is kind of placed on Germany. So they're like putting a lot of, they're making them pay a lot of reparations to other countries. So it's a huge financial strain. And Fritz is like, well, I'm still going to serve my country by developing a method that I can extract gold from seawater. So then they can pay all this off. It didn't work out. Imagine (laughs) if it did though. That would have been really cool. It would have been huge. So, but this was another big blow for him. Like, and then it got worse. So. And this guy just blows, huh? Yeah. So, yeah, he was at the top of his game when he, like, you know, developed ammonia fertilizers from the air. And then he did this crazy shit during the First World War. And then. I I think I know what's coming. You know what's coming? You know what's goose-stepping its way into the show now? Uh, Yep. Trying to steal the show. (laughs) Yep. So as the Nazis rose to power in the late 20s and early 30s, mounting anti-Semitism gripped Germany, uh, German academia. Although Haber was exempt from any of the new anti-Jewish laws because he was a, a kind of a war hero in Germany, his many Jewish employees were not. He had about 75% of his staff was Jewish. And these new laws said that um, Jewish people could not be in That's public right. service. Yep. Uh, so in 1933, an order came for all Jewish workers to be dismissed from their posts. Haber resigned from the institute that he was director of in protest and went into exile. I mean, like there was, even though he was Christian by this point, like someone posted a notice on like the, the institute door that said the Jew Haber is not welcomed here. So he's kind of also being pushed out of Oh, yeah. His own country or like the, the country that he fought or like did horrible things to to try to uh, protect, I guess. So he drifted through Europe, eventually settling in England at Cambridge. He still had some friends who kind of helped him out and like found him like a position. But, you know, he was in England and a lot of British troops suffered and died because of, because you know, of corn. Him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so he was treated with hostility by many of the English scientists. And also now his health was failing. So he was older, early 60s. Um, so exiled from his country and his work, he decided to move again to a new position in uh, mandatory Palestine. So this was kind of like a an area in what is now Israel. So as he was traveling through Switzerland, though, he suffered either a massive stroke or heart failure and died alone in a hotel in Basel. Don't really feel that bad for the guy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, like, oh, well, you know. And it, it, it gets worse. Oh, does it? I yep. mean, he's already dead. He's he's dead, but his stuff isn't. his. So even though he, he was already an individual with a very complicated legacy, mm-hmm. his work would further be used against humanity by the same Nazi regime that forced him into exile. Oh, oh, man. So... So, I mean, you take, let's take the word Nazi out of it, okay? Nazi, I mean, we can say Germany, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. And I mean, and, and I mean, if you just read all that over again, but put Germany in it, it is such a fucking slap in the face to him. Oh, you yeah. know? It, and he so deserves it. Kind of, yeah. Um, but I mean, at it's the like same time, like. justice almost. Yeah, I, I, I can see that. Um, like I mean, it, it, let's say he did the poison gas thing, mm-hmm. okay, and then realized, dude, I fucked up. That's fucked up of me. I'm wrong. Well, I lost my girl. And then he turned around and did the whole whole ammonia thing. Okay, then like redeemed himself redeemed that himself, way. You know, like this would be such a tragic story. I mean, it is a tragic story. It is. I but mean, it, 
like my heart would be like, oh, this poor dude. I mean, he was suave and he, he got it going on for him and he's just trying to do what's right. But no, nah, he's a dick. Well, he did grow to um, regret his work in chemical warfare. And like, kind of like the way that it's seen is that he was just doing his duty to his country. And you can think of it the same way that any other. Like the, that's what the Nazis said. They were just doing their duty. Yeah. And, and I mean. following orders, you know. And I mean, if you want to uh, look at that, look at it that way too. Like, like the scientists who worked on the atomic bomb were also doing their duty, and they were doing horrible things. I think like the reason that he's really vilified is because Germany lost the war, <laughs> and it, it could be that is true. You know, winners mm-hmm. always get to yeah. The history is written by the win- yeah. winners. Because, I mean, it wasn't like the British weren't developing chemical weapons. It wasn't like the French weren't developing chemical weapons. And it wasn't like there were other scientists. Like, the thing is that he he was like, he pushed for it. He was like, we should do this. We should use this. And Well, and, I don't know, like, laughing and being all suave and, and mm-hmm. fucking proud about killing, you know. I mean, that's kind of fucked up. Well, like, know? I mean, it's like. And let's say the man, like, like did this mm-hmm. and then went home and went to sleep crying every night. You know, I mean, you feel so bad for him, but he, he was, he was, well, he was happy because he, he was like helping famous. his country. Yeah. That's the thing. It's like, like war is such a complicated thing because really uh, like the point is to inflict as many casualties. And I mean, what's the difference between killing people with gas as opposed to blowing them up? <laughs> like it's, it's the same. It ends up you're, being the same right, result. Yeah. You're right. Except for, um, well, no, I guess not. Like There's always the, been stray shots and to mm-hmm. kill innocent people. And yeah. Yes, like, yeah. And well, let, let me finish okay, this yeah. part <laughs> up and then we'll get into like a discussion of it. So, yeah. So he, even though he was dead in the 1920s, you know, in between the war, uh, after the war, Fritz had developed a hydrogen cyanide pesticide known as Cyclone. So he was working on, you know, pesticides, kind of going back to, you know, trying to help out humanity. People. So after his death, once the Nazis came into power, they kind of realized that Cyclone had some uh, really deadly potential. They altered just one thing in the compound. They removed the pungent smell that would alert people of the gas's presence. So Cyclone B was used in gas chambers of concentration camps camps to murder countless Jewish people and undesirable individuals during the Holocaust, including some of Haber's family members. Wow. Yeah. His own invention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, kind of how we were talking he serves as a prime example of a scientist who was capable of both really great good and incredible evil. And even though he eventually came to regret his work during the war, he was not entirely forgiven for his actions. He adamantly pushed for the use of chemical weapons, even though the German com- command themselves opposed it, because this was still the era of like gentlemanly warfare. And it seems, you know, in his eagerness to prove his patriotism, Fritz kind of overlooked his humanity. But then again, war is brutal, and regardless of the weapons used, people were going to die. And Fritz Fritz was not the only prominent scientist to aid in the development of these weapons. He is kind of really vilified because of his eagerness to use them, though, because he was really pushing for it. And he set that very dangerous precedent where other countries were now coming in and using these weapons as well. Uh, So... 
the the looming cloud of war has you know obviously not yet yet dissipated with his what he kind of started you know even as recently as the ongoing syrian civil war chemical weapons have been deployed against civilians so clearing the air for fritz's legacy may take a lot longer than we thought uh, and i don't want to say that if he hadn't used them other people wouldn't have yeah, because they were already being used. He just took it to that next he, level. Yeah. That, that scientific fucking, um, well, like, you know. It was mass scale. Yeah, mass, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was like the first, and it was it was so effective that it, that like the Germans, this was like a test run. Like, Ypres was a test run. They didn't think that it was going to be super effective. They're, so they weren't even, like, once all these the these um french troops like were dying and scattering and breaking like the line their line was breaking they didn't even take advantage of that because they were like themselves like oh it actually worked so they didn't even gain as much ground as they could have had it, it shocked both sides <laughs> in that sense yeah do you have anything to add jonah i said yeah what a lovely episode you know <laughs> i know um, it's it's it makes you think, though. Like it, you know, what it really made me think um, about just the power of science, mm-hmm. you know, and how it for can both be used good, for and good and evil. And you know, Fritz is an interesting story. And in science history, there's a lot of stories like this. Mm-hmm. Um, it's easy to get mad at this guy and all that, um, but yeah, there's a lot of a lot of stories like this, and it's it's just truly sad. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, yeah, it's amazing what he did with uh, farming and all that, and fertilizing and stuff, uh, pulling uh, the ammonia out of the air, nitrates and all that. But um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's it's hard to really put him in a either or kind of category. Exactly, it really is. Yeah, um, because I mean, it's a little easier to put him in a villain category. Mm-hmm. Uh, than it is the hero category. But then again, you like any scientist who's ever worked in any form of war effort, then you can might as well lump him in that category too. Oh yeah, yeah. Like I mean, Oppenheimer, he, you know, he helped develop the atomic bomb, which killed two hundred thousand people. Well, yeah. Definitely. So he's a villain, but at the same, but you know, we kind of look at him, and you know, he also had a really tragic life. Mm-hmm. But yeah, um, Kitty. So you know. In my book, Kitty's always a hero. <laughs> all right. Well, yeah, that's all I probably have to add. You know, I don't know. You guys, um, you know, the audience should decide for themselves if they thought this exactly. guy was completely evil. Then let us know. Or if he thought, you know, it's just more complicated than that, then you know, let us know. Um, Actually, you know what? I would be very interested to hear is uh, if anyone out there would like to write to us. Mm-hmm. On their view on patriotism with science. Yeah, patriotism and science. That's awesome to hear about, you know, uh, mm-hmm. different opinions about that. Um, that'd be really cool. Mm-hmm. And yeah. if you have Nazi jokes, those are always fun. Yeah, freaking Nazis. Next week, we'll hopefully <laughs> not have any terribleness. So, yeah, um, again, I want to thank everyone for listening, even though this might have been a hard episode to listen to. If you like the show, you can go to Apple Podcast and give us a rate and review. Uh, if you want to be even more amazing, you can actually donate to the show by going to anchor.fm slash Pod and clicking the support this podcast button. If you want to go ahead and write to us, share your opinions about this episode on, you know, whether Fritz was evil or not or or suggest future episodes, you can email us at bunsenburnerpod at gmail.com. You can also find us on the internet at our website, bunsenburnerpod.com. 
And we're also on Twitter at BunsenBurner19 and on Instagram at BunsenBurnerPod. And, you know, usually post, like, some some funny memes on there or something. Uh, you can find me specifically at Gatos and Tiaras on Twitter and Instagram or just Google my, or just uh, look up my name on Facebook. You'll probably find me. Uh, Jonah, do you want to let everyone know how they can get a hold of you? I'm your heartbroken bud smoking <laughs> uh, co-host with the most. Uh Tear jerking, crying because of Fritz. <laughs> Fritz and all his uh, attitude. Anyways, I'm Jonah. You can catch me at BakerBase at Yahoo.com. That's B A K R B A S S at Yahoo.com. Send me whatever you like. Uh, most likely I'll delete it before I read it. Not playing. <laughs> I wouldn't do that. Um, come see me on Facebook as well. Just type in Jonah Baker. And as always, I want to thank uh, John Odway for letting us use his song Bunsen Burner as the theme to our show. Go listen to his music. He's great. He's definitely wouldn't unleash chemical war on anybody, <laughs> I would hope. And, you know, join us next week because we're going to be taking a little trip. Where are we going? Where are we going? It's not a place. Oh. It's a state of mind, I guess. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So join us next Groovy, week for that. Baby. Oh, yeah. We're going to need some sitar music. Okay. <laughs> Sounds funny. Bye. Bye.